you're listening to a this day original podcast it's up to each society at every period in time to look at the ideas that exist sift through them and see what what makes sense and throw away what doesn't make sense and at the same time continue to generate new ideas and not necessarily be trapped in the golden ideas of our past without the complicity of the citizens no ruler you you in a democracy or in a sovereign or in an authoritarian state can get away with whatever the ruler wants so it's not just yatha raja hai tatha praja is yatha praja tatha raja because the 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 leaders of a democracy are cut of the same cloth as the population as the citizen social media in its current form in the current business models is a serious threat to liberal democracy around the world and to our country as well nitin how wonderful to have you on our podcast the readers room i've known nitin Since the time he was contemplating returning from Singapore, that was what twelve years ago, Nitin. More than that, two thousand and seven. That was. Good God, we grow old very fast. And uh, subsequently, set up the uh, wonderful Dakshushila Institution, which I've been very privileged to watch grow apace, both in terms of numbers, but more importantly, in terms of the quality and depth of uh, analysis. And uh, now he has acted. If we are to take the tale at face value, as the conduit for learnings from one very venerable Nitina of Takshashila, what a wonderful coincidence, Nitin, uh, which was purveyed to him by a mysterious professor from Afghanistan, and uh, is appropriately called the Nitopadesha. Uh, now, this is very, very difficult, uh, Nitin, to distinguish continually between. The Nitin Pai in front of me, and the Nitin of Takshashila of several millennia ago. So, um, and since we don't have access to him on this podcast, um, you'll have to answer for both. So, I want you to start by telling us in brief one of the stories that I really loved, which is that of Kesari Pura, the change of a town, which, where I once saw filth and squalor, now see pleasant gardens. Where I saw poverty and want, I now see contented faces. Where I saw idleness and discord, I now see industry and cooperation. So, how did this Kesaripura change from a squalid place to a place of uh, great affluence and uh, contentment? Thanks, Mohit. I'm really delighted to be in the. Leaders' room with you, and I want to start by revealing a secret which you have been too modest to reveal to your listeners. Gentlemen, <laughs> uh, boys, and girls of India and abroad, I just want to let you know that Mr. Mohit Satyanand was the first first podcaster in India. Long before podcasts became a thing, uh, Mohit Satyanand was the voice of Pravati, uh, coming to you on the internet every month. Uh, on a ten-minute podcast uh, called "The Voice of Pradhati," and he was the voice of Pradhati, and this was in two thousand and eight. So uh, time uh, flies, uh, as Mohit said. But I just want to put this on record that there are sides to Mr. Mohit Satyan that he has not revealed to the unsuspecting public and his large and interesting and intellectual uh, reader uh, listener base. Mohit, uh, thanks for having me on the show. But you know, when you Talked about Nitina and uh, Nitina of Tatsushila and Nitin Bai of the Tatsushila Institution. The parallels are really, really there, and sometimes I wonder who's really who. Uh, so, prescience is one thing, but you know, I think if you look at the way Hindu philosophy works, the sense of time is not linear. You know, there's a sense of non-linearity of time. And the past and the future are all in, you know, arranged in a non-linear fashion. So we should not be surprised that Nitinov of Takshashila was able to anticipate um, everybody from uh, Ambedkar to Savitribai Phule to uh, Jefferson and Mac- uh, Machiavelli and and so on, because I don't think that ideas have geographical ownership or even civilizational ownership. Ideas belong to humankind in general, and it's up to each society at every period in time to look at the ideas that exist, sift through them, 
and see what what makes sense, adopt what makes sense, and throw away what doesn't make sense. And at the same time, continue to generate new ideas and not necessarily be trapped in the golden ideas of our past. Right. So that's how I would answer uh, your question about, uh, or rather, your comment about uh, Nitina's anticipation and and. Nostradamus-like ability to look into the future. Now, Kesari Pura appears. Uh, you know, when I when I look at the text of the Nitopadesha, there are several cities and characters who sort of appear in uh, various parts of the the book. And the book, as you know, as you told your readers, is a is a web of stories. It's a it's a labyrinth of stories. And the stories are not necessarily connected. You know, you could read each story individually, and it makes as much sense to you uh, if you read it in any particular order. But if you read it in linear order, there is a there's a larger story arc which makes sense at a different level to you. There are cities that repeat. Uh, there are characters that repeat. And Kesaripura is not entirely a city that repeats. It appears only once in the story, but. The characters of Kesaripura appear in many other stories. Now, I think the story of Kesaripura is one of good governance, right? Where uh, a small town, uh, alliance city, uh, turns from being a small, poor kind of a hamlet to a dynamic, prosperous, uh, and aesthetically beautiful city. And I think what the author is trying to bring out there is that uh, this. The, the change of the city from being a poor, ugly hamlet to a prosperous, beautiful city is a result of human intervention. It is a result of the leadership having good ideas and a citizenship that understands those good ideas and plays accordingly. So it's, it's a partnership between the ruled and the rule, ruler and the ruled. And the influence of good ideas of governance which the, good, uh, the rulers sort of take up. So the, the Kesaripura story, of course, has a very self-important uh, intellectual who claims to have advised the, advised the government of the place on how to change it. Uh, well, rulers get a lot of advice, but the credit should go to them when they, were, they are able to pick the right kind of advice and put that into action. And that, I think, is the uh, story of Kesaripura. I, I've not... I've, Deliberately not try to give away the plot in the in the way I've answered this question. So I'm a, I apologize to your listeners if I've sort of beaten around the bush, but I would really want them to read it and find out rather than me uh, explaining the story to them. Sure. Nevertheless, uh, a couple of things struck me about this story. First is that uh, whereas removing want, um, material want, was or would be the obvious goal of any ruler, any governance. Um, the story says that at the same time you also require art, architecture, and culture to make for uh, a great city. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about now your thinking, Nitin, about uh, about this second less obvious uh, component of building a great city? Well, you know, poverty has traditionally been seen from a uni-dimensional lens, you know, poverty is always seen as the uh, lack of material resources, you know, money, uh, objects, you know, things, um, you know, and it's seen that if you don't have money and things, you are poor. But what the book, uh, the story tells you, and I think there's a lot of merit to it, is that there's another dimension to poverty, and that's dignity. And what the story is telling you is that if you want to eliminate poverty, if you want to get people out of poverty, not only do you need to remove material want, you also need to ensure that people's dignity is enhanced. I can give you examples in this day and age where the opposite happens. You know, when, when, uh, when there are government schemes or even philanthropists and charitable people, they go out to poor areas and they distribute food and clothes and all of the other things. But the manner in which it is distributed, you know, getting people to form long queues uh, and this person who's giving it away stands on a high platform and throws the food packets to the, you know, to the people who are taking it. Uh, women who come for saris, they turn their hands up and, you know, their palms facing upwards and somebody puts the sari as arms in their hand. Might be receiving material benefits, 
in terms of money, in terms of goods that they need. But the manner in which they receive it subtracts from their dignity. Right? So in that sense, if you look at the logic of uh, Nitina and that story, what he's saying is that that is a way that does not solve your poverty problem. It might, uh, it might address one dimension of it. But to the extent that you've destroyed dignity, you've kept people poor. And the story of Kesari Pura is that you enhance dignity as well as give people means to achieve material prosperity. So give charity to some extent where it's necessary, but ensure that dignity is enhanced. The question is, how do you enhance dignity? You know, of course, there are things like saying treat people as equals, uh, uh, ensure that there is an egalitarianism in your mind when you're doing things. Uh, don't stand up on a high platform and, you know, look down on people and talk down to people. But there is an aesthetic dimension to it. When do people feel that they have dignity? When they have beautiful things, when they live in clean places, when they have uh, art and culture, etc. around you, around them, where they feel proud to, to exist in that community. Right? And that, that dignity comes from owning or being part of uh, a community that owns good, beautiful, nice things. So I don't think it's a coincidence that all ancient cultures uh, used to have great art, uh, you know, great music, to the extent that we can decipher that they had great music, but, you know, great statues, uh, buildings, cities, and so on. The, the Indus Valley cities, for example, were beautiful in terms of the way they were laid out. The sewers were, they were working, there was no overflowing sewers, there was nice grid-patterned streets. So I think the idea that uh, dignity and aesthetic is an important part of alleviating poverty and is part of the whole prosperity calculus is something which strikes as uh, elitist to a lot of people who've gotten locked themselves into the povertarian kind of thinking. But if you look at it holistically, I think tackling poverty means that a society has to tackle both. You know, now for the moment, I just want to say that it is not necessary for the government to build beautiful things, but society as a whole has to build beautiful things engage in art, culture, music, and so on, so that overall as a community we are prospering. I just like to interject there and say it has to be allowed to, and it has to be encouraged to. Yeah, and at, some points, and at some points it needs to be patronized also. Like when the kings and sovereigns patronized art, I think it, was, it made sense. But I find it hard for a democratic government of a country which has lots of poor people to, to allocate budgetary finances into some things like aesthetics. It's very hard. How does the government decide aesthetics? I, I, I believe that government can do a lot of good, but I cannot understand a government which is basically a set of bureaucrats and politicians working together who, who can now determine what is beautiful, what is uh, truthful, what is uh, melodious and so on. I can agree more completely with you on, on that. I just want to explore one other parallel sort of thought over here, which is that uh, um, one of the nations, in this case, uh, a city nation, that made a pretty rapid transition from the state of squalor, a malaria-ridden swamp, as it was called, to a city of prosperity and beauty, was a city-state of uh, Singapore, where you happen to spend a great deal of time. Uh, could you just briefly talk about uh, this particular case in Ipura and the uh, path that it trod on these dimensions and dignity and material want. I think that's the interesting thing, right? The parallel to the Kesari Pura in Singapore is pretty strong and I'm glad that you noticed it. And I'm, I'm not surprised that you noticed it. I'm glad that you noticed it. See, I think the idea with modern-day Singapore is that uh, the government in the early years was paternalistic. There's no doubt about it. Uh, while the government uh, got out of the way and allowed industry to flourish, it was also intervening in markets in terms of having heavy industries, large industries still under its control. It was one of the largest uh, uh, equity investors in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in that economy. But what it did was that it tried very hard to clean up the city, you know, which is physical cleaning up, you know, old-style hamlets, of course, there are people who say, oh, no, we, we destroyed the old cell hamlets and now we have a whole lot of high-rise buildings and so on. But uh, hygiene, uh, water supply, electricity supply, schooling, all of these services became very easily available to a whole lot of people, regardless of where they stood on the income pyramid. Uh, 
So bringing uh, good, uh, you know, good housing, a good roof over your head, uh, air conditioning at, in later years, uh, good schooling, uh, public transport, all out of these public services because they were accessible to everybody from the richest to the poorest. And they were of very good quality. You know, they were not squalid. Uh, they were not uh, sort of make-do kind of things. They were very high-quality high public services. I think made a huge difference in the sense of dignity which people had in the, and have on what it means to be Singaporean. Right? So even a Singaporean who's, let's say, poor by Singaporean standards, still is able to look and deal with the world with a degree of confidence uh, and security because that Singaporean is a product and has been able to enjoy and access these services. The question, of course, that arises is that if you're starting from a low level, any government, uh, particularly government, has to prioritize in terms of uh, what it provides and in what order. And in that sense, I think this is quite a direct link to um, what is actually the next uh, story in your book, which is The Secret of the Tent of Happiness, which is so beautifully poured. So I'm going to ask you to give a give a small potted version of that story to our listeners. Well, it's... Uh, uh, the, the story of uh, the Tent of Happiness actually happens as part of a little frog who goes on a journey around the world. And in one of the stops, the little frog uh, and her companions are at a night market, uh, kind of a mela. And uh, there's a show and there's a showman who says, I'm going to show you the secret of the, I'm going to show you a tent of happiness and I'm going to ask you the secret of the tent of happiness. So what happens is the showman asks the elephants to go in and ask the crowd whether the, the tent is full. And uh, the crowd says, yeah, you know, the elephants are in, there's no more space. Then he squeezes some other animals. I forgot what they are, buffaloes or pigs. Uh, and then he says, uh, is the tent full? And the people say, yes, it's full. And then he puts in some more animals, I think rabbits uh, of some nature, some smaller animals. And now the crowd is a little circumspect and they say, some say yes and some say no. Then he squeezes in, uh, I think, mice in the end. And uh, uh, a whole lot of hundreds of mice are sent in. And he says, uh, uh, is the tent full? And now the 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 crowd is, uh, you know, thinking whether he's going to put bees or something inside later. But then he asks the question, uh, what is the secret uh, of the tent of happiness? How is it that I was able to fill the tent with so many people? And uh, the little frog, she comes up with the right answer. I can, I, mean, I can tell you the story here in the sense that she says, the thing is, the trick is to put the elephants in first. That, uh, the, you know, put in the... Uh, you know, the most important things in first and then the less important things later and then you'll be able to fill a lot of things. What I think Nitina is trying to do here through through the storyteller and the narrator of the story, what he's trying to do is trying to tell you that the government has to pay and make sure that it does the most important things first. So the elephants in this tent here would be um, rule of law, uh, protecting the environment, ensuring that there is uh, uh, fair play, uh, then probably national defense, public uh, public services and public goods uh, first, spend on these things, health, education, and uh, you know, spend on these things first. And then you start putting in your money in various other things that you need to do. You know, So in a way, the, the, the story hints to the need for budgetary prioritization. Uh, well, you, you, would, you would not... I mean, I suppose you could use this in your life as well, where uh, you do the important things first. If you get a salary, you know, you pay for the most important things first. Uh, a message to the younger salary earners, uh, make sure you get health insurance early in your life. Make sure you, you know, pay for your more important things like your, uh, your, your family commitments, your housing and health and so on. And then uh, on nutrition and then spend your money on various other things that you might think are important, like hanging out with your friends. Actually, there's another version of this story, Nitin, which is um, told about a Harvard professor of philosophy, where he takes a beaker and uh, he fills the beaker with stones. And again, the same question, is it full? Yeah, it's full. And then he shakes it around and puts some pebbles in. And um, see, there's place for pebbles. Is it full? Yes, it's full. No, it isn't. So he puts some sand in. And... Um, uh, then he says, is it full? And they say, yes, it's full. And then 
he pours some beer in. And there's place for beer as well. And so the question he's asked is, what do these represent? And he said, well, you know, the big rocks, they represent family. And family comes first. You may disagree. Family comes first. And second comes friends. And third comes career. Uh, you need to have your personal life sorted out first. And then a student asked him, what about the beer? And he said, beer? Oh, there's always room for beer. <laughs> you know, but I like the I like the Howard story as well because I think, in a sense, and I agree with that prioritization. You know, in the sense that uh, you might not agree with it when you're twenty or thirty, but when you start uh, entering middle age in the in the mid forties, I think you start realizing the importance of family and friends in everything that you do. And many people sort of do this, uh, come to this realization rather regretfully, having lost uh, contact with friends and family. And then you're in your 50s and then you realize that you might have money and material things, but you don't really have friends and family. So again, I think the advice to the younger people is to, uh, you know, to ensure that the relationships uh, with friends and family are properly maintained. In fact, Mohit, if I were to go back to the earlier part of the book, the first, the first few chapters of the book or stories in the book are all about maintaining relationships. So it's about... It's about maintaining the right relationship in the right way, you know. And uh, maybe I should just sort of segue into a little bit of things which uh, we've been... The I just want to, before you, before yeah. you go there, I just want to stay with this for just a moment. You know, this thing of prioritization. And uh, I think a danger with most problems is to try to do too many things. And I just, as a keen observer of uh, public policy in India, I just want to comment on that. Is our government spending enough on justice, on health and education, on defense? Or, or is it trying to do too many things and not doing them too well? Absolutely, it's not spending adequately and it's trying to do too many things and it's spending on the wrong things. So in a sense, uh, the, the, the parable of the tenth of happiness applies to all of, you know, to our government, all state governments in the union government. Now, part of the reason why this is so is that when you're in government, you, can't, you don't ever have a clean slate. You always start with last year's budgets and the previous year's allocations and your room to maneuver is not that much. You know, you probably have 5 to 10% ability to maneuver uh, and then you have to maneuver systematically in a particular direction in order to, you know, uh, reprioritize your expenses over a period of time. So, uh, definitely, if I were to, you know, make a budget, I would make those allocations first on rule of law, on uh, education and healthcare. Uh, and defense, and then uh, talk about uh, running airlines and uh, Wi-Fi networks and soap companies and oil companies and a whole lot of other things, uh, running banks and insurance companies. So th those 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 should be you know priorities number two hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty-five and so on. The top five priorities uh, must be the most important ones. But because now you you have, you you inherit almost you almost always inherit a budget. And you inherit the budget which has so many places to allocate funds. And each of those allocations have a political economy behind it. When I say political economy, uh, if you change that allocation, someone's going to scream. And you have a lot of people who will scream for a lot of things. So I my heart goes out to the people who make budgets. Now it's not you know, it's not necessarily that always that they have the most prudent public finance ideas in their mind. But whoever they may be and whatever ideas they might have. My heart goes out to them because it's every single thing that you touch has a lot of, it's, it's a live wire. Every, there's a lot of people who will scream for this and that. And you have to satisfy them in some way or the other, right? And still get into the general direction. So, two-part answer to your question. Uh, are we very poorly prioritized? The answer is yes. Uh, can we reprioritize? The answer is yes. But even the best effort to reprioritize will take five, ten years. It's not something which you can do overnight. Yeah. So to go back to an earlier part, you know, you were talking about it, and I want to go back to the quote that has been so often misappropriated and uh, to uh, Jefferson, which is the one about eternal vigilance. And the central role in that story, where the tyrannical Dulgon, the epitome of bad attributes the lion, he gets overthrown and replaced by Varaketu, the mongoose. 
who promises equality and so on and so forth. But the jackal has become his counsel, and in a member, in a manner that sort of anticipates George Orwell, you have a situation where the whole cycle of tyranny and inequality repeats. Now, as a counter to this, you talk about the fact that criticism is a very, very desirable attribute of the people to prevent this kind of um, uh, misuse of power by the rulers. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and how you can sustain criticism in a situation where the ruler doesn't want it. Yeah. Well, the first book of which this story is a part is really, I think, the inspiration for Nidina to come out with this text. Because even if I, in the year 2023, look at our uh, corpus of texts about uh, the role of citizens, you don't find any. The the books that we have which in uh, in Indian philosophy which are cited for political philosophy are the Arthashastra, which is a you know, which is a scholarly text on the running of a kingdom. And the Panchatantra and the Hitopadesh. Right. Uh now all these things, including the Shakti Parva of the Mahabharata, if you want to add in, or in the Mahabharata itself has a whole story. If you look at it as as an instructive manual, all these Texts are written for princes and sovereigns on how to govern their kingdom or how to acquire power and how to grow your power, how to become, you know, rise from being a prince to a king and from a king to an emperor who rules, you know, the whole of Aryavarta. They are not written for citizens. So when you see the Chanakya for business or Arthashastra for business, I, you know, really get worried because. The Chanakya and the Arthashastra operates in the amoral world of statecraft. There is no superior morality. Kings and sovereigns don't respond to any other um, any other uh, norms or morals than power. And this also is brought out in one of the other stories in the book, in this book. And unlike kings and emperors, citizens, you and I, or business people, entrepreneurs, we operate in a moral context called the constitution. Now, in the modern context, it is the constitution of India or the constitution of the United States. There is a constitution of a country. Or probably in the ancient context, you would operate under the, you know, the Dharma Shastras or the rules and norms of a particular kingdom. You were never able to do amoral things. But the Artha Shastra is about amoralism. It's about using power to do whatever you need to do to acquire more power. So you cannot translate the Artha Shastra and say, I'm going to do Artha Shastra for business. Because a business has to operate within a moral context. It can be a different context in the United States or in India, in the UK or in Saudi Arabia, but it is a moral context. So, what the book is doing is telling citizens their dharma. What is it that you as a citizen ought to do? How is it that you as a citizen have to conduct yourself in, uh, in a Janapada, in a, in a uh, fairly liberal democratic republic? And what it tells the citizen is that, look, if you want to have prosperity, if you want to have freedom, if you want to have happiness, or yoga kshema, as the word is, you have to play the part of a citizen. You have responsibilities that you have to discharge as a citizen. And there are a number of responsibilities which each of the stories mentions. One of them is holding the feet of the powerful to the fire. And in the Vanatito story, what really happens is uh, the bad old ruler is thrown out and a new an idealistic young person becomes a new ruler. But over a period of time, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this new ruler also starts taking on the characteristics of the bad old ruler. And one of the reasons it happens is the citizenry is so besotted with this new ruler that they don't criticize this new ruler. They think that the new ruler should not be criticized. And, you know, because he's one of us, and he's done so much for, for us. He's, he's helped us throw away the old ruler. And at the end of the day, they end up with the new ruler who is very much like the old one, as from their perspective is concerned. So criticism is important. Well, criticism requires, I think, conviction. 
And conviction requires education. So if you see people today who are unwilling or scared or reluctant to criticize rulers, now whether that's in a city or in a state or in the government or in international affairs, if, if you see that, I think it's because people are not aware that it's their duty, it's their responsibility, it's part of Praja Dharma for you to be able to do that. It is not uh, it is not a, a form of respect or a service that you're doing to your cherished leader or your loved one. It is a duty that you're doing to keep that person in line. And failing to do that duty means that you're letting down your own leader. Right? Education. education is one part. But I, the question in today's context is that uh, you have several regimes, including ANS, where there are sufficient number of critics who see it as their role and responsibility, who have the education to do it. But there is a very strong incentive for what reasons uh, we can debate by the ruler or the rulers to tamp down on criticism, to actively penalize criticism. And this creates a tension between the role of or the responsibility of the ruled and the responsibility of the ruler. This is a real life question. It's not it's not just theoretical. So I'm asking you for your thoughts on uh, where, how this tension can be resolved. Because there's an imbalance of power. Yes, definitely. And I think it's not just the... See, given a ruler who wants to uh, stifle criticism, uh, will continue to do it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's in the order of things. It's the nature of things for the powerful to shield themselves from criticism. What I think is happening in our context in India, but also around the world now, is that there is a complicity of the citizens in doing self-defeating things. Uh, rulers can't stifle criticism you know, forever. Institutions have to, you know, there are always institutions which protect, uh, you know, with bridal power, which protect citizens. But institutions are made of individuals. People who sit in these institutions are cut off the same cloth as the rest of the citizenry. So there is an element of complicity in the citizenry. And this is what this is the, what I think the book is trying to address, that your complicity can come from ignorance. You might be complicit in your silence. You might be complicit in not standing up for your rights. You might be complicit in not standing up for the rights of a weak person. You might be complicit in letting oppression continue and, uh, you know, being okay with oppression. What the book is trying to educate people is that this is not okay. This is where you're letting down your own dharma. Your dharma to hold together a republic requires you to act in a certain way, requires you to criticize rulers, hold the officials to account. And I think if you see many of the stories in the book, holding the powerful to account, either citizens holding the powerful to account or you know agents of the state holding each other to account or some kind of a uh, dharma entering the field and enjoining the powerful to do the right thing. All of these are part of this Praja Dharma which keep uh, the, the Republic in working order. Now, if there is a, an imbalance, I think the error, the fault lies on all sides. And without the complicity of the citizens, no ruler in a democracy or in a sovereign or in an authoritarian state can get away with whatever the ruler wants. So it is the complicity of the citizens that I think we need to address. And I don't think it's a, it's a short-term thing, you know. It's not... When I say education, it's not taking one webinar or one class or one YouTube video or reading one book. It is a sense of citizenship that has to be uh, uh, inculcated through society. I'll tell you something very interesting. Thomas Jefferson, uh, the third president of the United States, had a lot of things to his credit. So he was the third president of the United States. He was a member of the Constituent Assembly. Uh, he was one of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence. He was the ambassador to France. He had a lot of other, lot of things to his credit. But when he died, in his will, he said that my epitaph should read Thomas Jefferson, member of the Constituent Assembly, President of the United States, and founder of the University of Virginia. And then people would ask, how does being the founder of the University of Virginia rank with being the President of the United States or member of the Constituent Assembly and so on? But Jefferson was always alive to the fact that demagoguery is something which all democracies are prone to. He had studied 2,000 years of uh, Western history 
from the Greeks to the Romans and, and so on, and the European history. And he realized that demagoguery is a central problem. It is a necessary evil, which I don't think it's a necessary evil. It's, a, it's, it's, it's something which goes hand in hand with democracy. You cannot isolate demagoguery from democracy. So he says, what do we do to prevent demagogues from taking over the United States? There's a very wonderful book called uh, Mortal uh, Republic by, by Watts, which talks about the Trump phenomenon in the United States. And Jefferson wanted to protect the republic by ensuring that there is, a, there is an elite who has absorbed the values of liberal democracy. And it's something which is, you know, their educational system makes them absorb the ideas, the ideals and the values of liberal democracy and makes them capable of running the republic, operating the republic. Of course, in those days, when we're talking about Jefferson, education was an elite enterprise. So obviously it was meant for the elite of the place. But to this day, uh, when we talk about an elite in India, in my view, anybody who's crossed 12th grade or even has entered 12th grade is part of the elite of the country. You know? I think the elites have this responsibility to uphold the republic. Because the non-elite are too caught up with the day-to-day -day, uh, you know, day -day challenges for them to think about protecting the system. You know, To be able to protect the system, you need to have some amount of security in terms of where your rosy roti is going to come from. And therefore, the responsibility of the elite is really to uphold the republic, to strengthen the republic. And if the republic is not delivering, or if demagogues have taken over, the elite have a large share of that blame. That complicity which I talk of is primarily, firstly, the, the complicity of the elite, and then the complicity of the master. There's a wonderful book written by the banker uh, Sengupta, the, the um, uh, a sociologist, which I think was entitled exactly this, The Abdication of the Elite. And yeah. uh, it talks about... And I think it is really complete void in the sense that the elite have... We are used to saying that the elite have abdicated from civic spaces in terms of living in gated communities, have their own power supply and security and air-conditioned cars and transport and so on. That's well understood. But I think very few people understand that the elite have abdicated from their responsibility of being good citizens. Not, not in the terms of paying taxes kind of good citizens, but in terms of upholding the values necessary to operate the republic. Yeah, in fact, this is something that I think about a lot, which is that um, one of the values of the constitution, which we rarely talk about, is that of solidarity. And uh, when we are stuck in this kind of hierarchical society, we forget it. You know, I'm... I'm in solidarity with you, but do we even offer these small tokens of significance, recognition to the waiter, to uh, to the driver, to the airline attendant, etc., etc.? So, yeah, I, I agree completely. But I want to uh, segue from um, demagoguery into something which somehow shouts out to me from the books of, uh, from the pages of this book, as something which seem to have mattered a lot to Nitina and perhaps to you as well, which is about rudeness of discourse. This is something that I've not come across in any other book. And uh, it says, realms whose people are rude, uncouth, and unmindful eventually end up in a sorry state. And only tyrants benefit if there is a rottenness in their subjects' words. Now, at an aesthetic and emotional level, this appeals to me. But how does it go beyond that? How do we actually see this working through into the rottenness of a system? Well, I think this is to do with a simple uh, sort of understanding that a democracy is only as good as its discourse. Right? The idea that a democracy is a, a one of the best forms of government or the least worst form of government relies on the fact that information of various kinds is made available to everyone or to most people or whoever wants information and that information is debated and fact-checked through discourse. It's not through you know fact-checking organizations or by the bunch of elite who say this is true and this is false but rather fact-checked through discourse. right? And people in a, in a collective sense Look at information and decide what is what is desirable, what is undesirable, what is uh, necessary, what is unnecessary, what is true, and what is false. Now, 
This means that if you want to wreck a democracy, you just have to wreck the information system that makes discourse possible or put discourse possible. If you and I can't sit together and debate on something which we disagree with, and through that disagreement, throw up arguments which you and I learn from, we might not want to uh, 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 accept that we've learned from each other because we are human and our ego is coming to play. But in the quietness of our rooms, uh, uh, you know, we put hand on heart, we discover things from each other when we debate each other. Now, let's say some, for some, by magic wand, an evil witch or an evil wizard waves a magic wand and debating becomes impossible. Then you are left with your point of view. I am left with my point of view. Neither of us know the weaknesses of our own arguments. Neither of us are in a position to learn in a very competitive way the best forms of arguments on the other side. Both of us are weaker. right? And in, in that sense, a democracy weakens when discourse weakens. Now, what is the best way to dis dis destroy discourse? One is, of course, you create networks or information systems, you know, which is a technical thing. Uh, you use a technical dimension when the infrastructure changes and your discourse can uh, can suffer. The other one is by being rude to each other. Because once we start being disrespectful, what gets in our way, I mean, we are, we, we are unlikely to be able to learn from each other. We, because we don't respect each other. Because you, you insult me, I insult you. And in this conversation, we don't listen to each other. We don't, we sort of start looking down on each other. The people who listen to us fall into one or two of the other camps and do the same to each other. And in a few weeks, we won't even start talking to each other, right? So we stop talking to each other and then discourse suffers. So I think the Sambhashatri case where, you know, there is this owl uh, which gives the secret formula to the birds and the animals of the tree on how to protect the tree from, uh, from uh, being ravaged. I think the secret formula there is one of being politeness by being, by having uh, an element of uh, decorum in civic discourse where you can agree, you can disagree, but you do that respectfully and with decorum. And one of the things which the, which the owl says, or uh, yeah, which the owl says, is that don't be rude, or don't use nasty words. And using those nasty words changes the context of that discourse from being one where, which is supportive of democracy and of uh, finding new ideas to one which makes things dysfunctional and rancorous. Forum for a discourse in a democracy is supposed to be parliament. And uh, a few days ago, I was having uh, a discussion with uh, Tripodaman about his wonderful book, Nehru, the debates that uh, shaped India. And one of the things that struck me was both the quality of reasoning and the tone of argument between participants in those debates. And uh, in the history of a nation, 75 years is not a huge amount of time but uh, the change in the quality of discourse there has been absolutely stunning. It's like two different planets. How did this happen and why? What the, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think the first generation and the first few generation of leaders were very acutely conscious of the fact that they are placeholders in this drama of uh, democracy and republic, where... Uh, they have to play the roles that they are assigned uh, and they have to play them well and set them as, you know, set it as a precedent for future generations. Now, of course, the future generations didn't have the same sense of obligation, so it might not have happened. But the culprit is you have to pick one, is the Anti-Defection Act uh, of the mid-80s, which made parliamentary discourse impossible. Before the uh, Anti-Defection Act, each MP was representing his or her constituents and would engage in debates, whether it's uh, the bill was by the ruling party or by the opposition, uh, they engage in debates which would bring out the interests of the constituents to the best possible thing, but also use the, uh, the, his, or her, his or her own judgment and opinion on that bill. What that anti-defection law did is that it stifled debate. It said, look, you can't do all these things. The party leaders decide. Whatever is the party position, you just take this. So you became... You know, literally, parliament became a numbers game. You know, uh, the party leaders decide whether you're for or against, and every MP does that. And then, how does the MP distinguish himself or herself? Is by histrionics, by jumping up and down, and by shouting, and all of that. Because we had TV at the same time, so that they had to show 
people or television that they are, they exist and they are doing good stuff, right? So I think the parliamentary thing is one uh, thing. But you know, I'm more concerned about civic discourse because one of the things which comes out in the book is yatha praja tatha raja. You know, it's not just yatha raja or tatha praja. It's yatha praja tatha raja because the 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 leaders of a democracy are cut off the same cloth as the population, as the citizen. So if the citizens have a terrible way of engaging with each other. As you said, you know, you go to a restaurant, you're rude to the waiter. You know, you don't say thank you to the people who helped you. You know, you are on the street, you sort of elbow your way through, right? So if you have a citizenry which is not polite and does not act in, in the decorum, how can we expect the leaders to be any different, especially in a in a in a true democracy as we are? So I think that again the ball has to be thrown back to the citizen and said that and said and, and told that look, if you have a nasty way of engaging with each other, you are going to get poor governance. It's because the people who are going to come to power and engage in debate in parliament or in, in offices and other places are going to do that in the same rancorous, uncouth way as you do. Because they are you. I mean, who's who's a who's a political leader? He was an ordinary citizen at one time, and now he happens to be elected. He's no different. It's not that the process of election is going to become a cultural transformation of a person, right? So, therefore, what do we as citizens do to improve the level of discourse? I think platforms like this moment, a reading room where you and I can have a conversation. You and I agree on a lot of things. I suppose we converge in more areas than we diverge. But even if we diverge in some areas, we can talk to each other and we can talk to our listeners in a in a in an atmosphere where there is mutual respect for each other and for the listener. I think those are the kind of platforms which will contribute to improving of public discourse. Now there are lots of things which destroy public discourse. And I've been on record saying Twitter is one of those big ones which destroy public discourse. Before because uh, even even in the in the years before Twitter if you were a, if let's say you were a blogger, as many of us were, you had to string together sentences to make an argument. And people would read that whole sentence and the whole argument before they decide uh, whether to accept what you're saying or not. So you needed to have some level of thought be behind what you said before you said it. You could have been wrong or right, that's not the point. But you had to put in some level of thought. And if you wanted to have a sustained conversation, you had to be respectful to some extent of the person on the other side. But along comes Twitter, Twitter, and you don't even need to string together a sentence. You don't need to know anything about the subject. You could just come in and start swearing at people and abusing people and being nasty. And not only did this work for you, uh, people found the nasty people very interesting and started following them. Uh, it's like a crazy man on the, the street corner will attract an audience, you know. It so happens that a crazy man standing on a street corner on Twitter starts becoming an influencer. Right? So so I think we, we, we have a situation where social media has destroyed uh, democratic discourse. I think it is a serious... Uh, social media in its current form, in the current business models, is a serious threat to liberal democracy around the world and to our country as well. We have to figure out how do we restore our discourse to some kind of health uh, in an age where we are being assaulted both by infrastructure as well as by, uh, you know, simple uh, non-acceptance of norms of discourse. I want to close with one last thing which I think is at the bedrock of the way in which you and I talk with each other. I don't mean Nitin and Mohit specifically, but um, uh, the kind of elite that you talk about, which is to say as you repeatedly do in the book, that critical inquiry is a lamp for all knowledge systems, including governance. But the question I have is that governance is tied up so intimately with politics. And politics is playing on a completely different battlefield, which is that of um, emotions and identity. So how do you reconcile it? But the 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 quote which you put out about critical inquiry being the lack of all reasons, interestingly, is from the Arthashastra. Right. Now, what is really amazing about that book, and a lot of people read the whole lot of things about the forms of government and the ways of warfare and how to uh, look up 
the elephants and all of that. You know, there's a lot of that text. And they miss out some of the early parts, the early introductory parts of the Aptashastra. What he says, Kautilya, amazingly for something which was written 2000 years ago and probably composed even before that, is that says, subject everything to critical inquiry. Anvikshiki is the word he uses. Subject everything to Anvikshiki. What is everything? He says everything including the Trai. And I had to go back and see what the Trai is. The Trai are the three Vedas. So what this man was effectively saying back 2000 years ago, that even if it is in the Vedas, you subject that to critical inquiry before you accept it. Right? And this was an injunction that he made to the kings. So he was telling the kings that look, doesn't matter, even if it's from the Vedas, you have to subject it to critical inquiry and only when you subject it, you know, read it under the lap of reason, should you accept uh, what Speed said. Now, as a, as a, as a prospectus for rational inquiry, this is amazing. comes from Kautilya, Bhutan, Finally, so very much part of Indian uh, culture and civilization and philosophy. Now, you know what? I don't think politics is a bad word. I think politics has a place. The politics of emotion has a place. The politics of identity has a place. Because you can't transact everything on a technocratic basis. You know, I'm a technocrat myself. I have been a technocrat myself. I can understand how techno technocrats work. I can understand the merits of a technocratic form of government. But politics makes that governance human. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just being a bunch of electrical engineers governing each other. Right? Even after a certain point in time, even there you'll need not technocratic needs. But you know what I mean? It's like, uh, you know, automatons, computers, robots can probably be governed by technocratic needs. But human governance requires politics. It requires emotion. It requires identity. It requires drama. The challenge is, how do we do this properly? What should be the limits of these things, what should be considered acceptable form of emotion, acceptable form of identity politics, acceptable form of, of drama, and what should be, you know, beyond the pale, you know. And that is the balance, that harmony that you need to bring in in order to be a prosperous, successful, uh, happy state, yoga shema. And that's what the book says, you know, in the sense that your dharma is about each entity knowing its limits knowing its responsibilities, its powers, and its limits. And the best form is one where each entity of society, whether it's the government, whether it's citizens, whether it's the police, whether it's the judiciary, whether it's chartered accountants, whether it's, uh, I don't know, gardeners, when they know what their dharma is, and they stay within the limits of their dharma. That's the best form of government. So I think our challenge in India today is not so much to say that let's, we, you know, discard the politics of identity, discard the politics of emotion, discard the politics of drama, uh, but rather to say that how do we bring this into a form where there are certain norms, there are certain things which we accept as legitimate in a civilized society and certain things which we don't accept. Now, one thing which we will not accept and we should not accept is violence. Right? So there is no, I mean, you could do identity politics, you can do emotion, but if you come out in front of parliament and say that I'm going to throw stones at you or I'm going to burn these buildings or these buses, the poor public buses that get burned every time that there is a public protest in India. That should be beyond the pale. Uh, or even coercion using non-violence. And my favorite public intellectual of the last hundred years is B.R. Ambedkar. And when he talked about the grammar of anarchy, right, what he was basically the subtext was that even Gandhian methods, where you would do, you know, Bokhartal uh, or you would do uh, hunger strikes or Satyagraha, is not acceptable in a liberal democracy where we, we choose our own laws. He says you could do this against the British, there was some justification, because you were not a democracy, you, you, did, you were not ruled by consent. But when you have a rule of consent, when you rule, when the, you choose your uh, legislators and they make the laws, you should not go into coercion using non-violence, right? Now, it can be a questionable and a controversial point in the Indian context, even our history. But I think there is something to what Ambedkar said. 
violence and coercion using non-violence should be unacceptable in in legitimate society there's always nuance in between supposing the parliament or the government in power wants to change the existing laws in a direction which is uh, seemingly undemocratic or unequal then the question comes is the uh, are non-violent demonstrations legitimate form of expressing displeasure uh, at the direction that the state wants to take yes but you know this this is this has a, this is a second question in philosophy and electrical engineering both in philosophy and electrical engineering let me tell you why in indian philosophy the the discourse on dharma is very very rich right and if you look at mahabharata the gita for example uh, when krishna is sitting uh, i'm sorry arjuna is sitting on the on the ground and asking for advice the whole idea is that he's look there are overlapping set of dharmas and which should take precedence right and that's what krishna sort of tells him that you know this is what your dharma is this is this should take precedence now of course you and i can disagree with with even the lord krishna but okay there is a set of set of uh, set of priorities which we can say uh, you know ways we can interpret dharma what i'm saying is the the discourse on dharma is very rich in indian philosophy but there's one thing which says there's an idea called apat dharma which is the dharma of emergencies right and the apat dharma basically reads like this all bets are off do whatever you need to do to survive right similarly in electrical engineering i am a communications engineer and one of the things that we were told and it was like like a uh, like a hard rule for us is about when you do transmission in a certain frequency on radio you should keep to your frequency and your modulation you do not stray from your frequency right because a lot of people are sharing the bandwidth right so if if you don't stick to your frequency then the radio guy will hear a tv program and the tv guy will hear a personal conversation all sorts of weird things will happen if you start straying in the old days when there was no encryption right so you had to stay in in band and you had to stay very very true to your power levels your modulation your frequency etc and that was told to you hundreds of times you go for amateur radio licensing exam the most important question they'll ask you is about frequency and band you want to become a radio operator same question but all international law national law all regulations there have one question in case of an emergency what frequency what band what power what modulation will you transmit the answer is any frequency any modulation any power right so basically the idea of a emergency when the rules of the game uh do not apply where it's abnormal where things like you know there's an earthquake where things have broken down where things are forced you know when there's a revolution or one kind or the other you can do whatever you want and that is perfectly understandable accepted as dharma it is apat dharma which is emergency dharma but it's still dharma you do what you need to do to survive any port in a storm nitin as well wonderful uh, wonderful talking to you and uh, i think uh, you've given our listeners enough reason to pick up the book read it at one go as i did or dip into it uh, over years and return to it what are you reading now well i am reading a book called angel maker by neil harkaway uh, uh which is uh, some kind of spy thriller uh science fiction steampunk fantasy rolled into one and i always read a uh, fiction uh, i read one book of fiction and one non fiction at the same time because uh reading too much of non fiction can make you a very dry person who nobody wants to have dinner with and reading too much of fiction can make you into a very uh very uh Every fairy person where serious people will sort of dismiss you out of out of hand so reading one of each keeps me on the straight and narrow right now i'm reading the, the uh, i'm reading uh fiction thanks so much nitin for being here for being on uh, readers room love to be on the readers room and uh, wish you well boy many many more hours of uh, the, the mohit baritone for the rest of the world <laughs> For more such podcasts, articles, trivia and interesting bits of information from the world of history, heritage, arts and culture, make sure to visit thisday.app.
You can also check out the This Day app on Google Play Store and iOS App Store.